Say it's all about honour. It really is. What you honour, you draw towards you. What you honour or show respect to, you draw towards you. What you dishonour and disrespect, you push away from you. It, it, it can't connect. And so when we come to this subject of honour, what we're saying is we want to honour God and we want to honour Him so that everything about Him and we have access to and everything that He wants to do in our lives, we gain access to. And today I'm continuing the series about honouring His Word. I could virtually stay on the remainder of this series just on His Word. It's uh, so important. Why is the Word of God important to us? These are the three things I'm going to touch on today. Why is the Word of God important? Because if you don't value something, you won't make time for it. If you don't value this, it doesn't become a part of your priority. And what you value, you pay the price for. The second thing I want to address is why don't people engage more with the Word? And the third thing, how can we build God's Word into our lives, thereby honouring God. Why is the Bible so important to us? When I looked up statistics about people who read the Word of God, this was, I could pull up America, and uh, it said about 16% of people in the church read the Word of God once a week. 16%. When I got to pastors, they weren't much better. And then when I got to pastors, why did they read the Word of God? the highest percentile factor was they read the word to get a sermon. They don't read it as a love letter. So why is it important to us to read the word? Three things, write this down. Number one, it was establish our father's identity. If we say we're saved, if we're a Christian, he's adopted us into his family, I think it's important to know our father. And you won't get to know our Father, your Father, without the Word of God. Can you imagine saying, I'm, uh, uh, if I meet someone over here and say, what's your name? I'm Thomas, who's your father? Or it's James over here. Oh, well, tell me everything about James. Well, I don't know, I don't live with him. How, can you tell me about James and Sheila? No, well, you, you said that you're, you're his son, yeah, you're, you're 19 years. Well, tell me something about James, what's his hobby? I, I don't know, I don't live with him, I don't spend time with him. How, how can I... That's, I know that sounds absurd, but that's how real it is. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm a son of God. Tell me everything about your father. Well, he's God. He's, he's the big man. He's got a big plan. Um, he sent Jesus. Uh, I'm running out. We've got to know our Father. I asked a couple of people some questions and I texted them this week. I texted them, what's your dad's favourite meal? What's your dad's favourite sport? What's your dad's favourite colour? What's your dad's favourite pastime hobby? So the first one I want to call up quickly is Isabel. Come up here, Izzy. And uh, I know your dad's answers. <clears throat> This is going to test you. <laughs> Bailey's looking across there going, whoa. Now, uh, what do you feel is your dad's favourite meal? So I feel like he doesn't have a specific meal. So I'm going to be a bit more vague and safe and say Indian food. Indian? <laughs> Indian. No, it's currently wrong. It is foreign, but it's Chinese. <laughs> okay, what's your dad's... Uh, Favourite sport? I think footy. Good. Footy. You put down here creative dance. <laughs> <laughs> Aussie rules, yes. Uh, what is your dad's favourite colour? Red and blue. No, it's black and white, the, the pies. <laughs> no. <laughs> Number four, what's your dad's favourite hobby? I'm going to say... Wait, pastime, did you say? 
Uh, hobbies, yeah, pastime. Same, same thing, yeah. Uh, I'm going to say walking on the beach. Walk the beach, yeah. No, it was doing home duties. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was going to the movies. <laughs> oh, that was the second one. <laughs> and what's your dad's favourite game? I'm going to say Rummyo, Rummacup, whatever that is. You're not much of a games person. <clears throat> Pictionary. Pictionary. Put it. Put your hands together. There you go. <laughs> yeah, spend some more time with your dad this week. Okay, Lenny, come up here. She's going to answer for Naya. Naya's a bit crook today. Uh, just give her a mic there. Thanks. All right. What's your dad's favourite meal? It's probably the same as my favourite meal in your family. That's right. That's good. Where's her answers? My dad's favorite. Okay, she's numbered it for me because I like it numbers. Um, she said, probably my grandma's noodle soup. It is. It's mum's uh, noodle yes. soup. If you've Very never good. had Mama Chan's noodle soup, this Sunday go there. No, 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 no. <laughs> I tell you what, years ago, Mama Chan could have opened up a noodle soup yes. place. She would have made a fortune, yeah. Uh, number two, what's uh, your dad's favourite sport? She what did said, I say? soccer or footy. Uh, he's got AFL and running. That's good. That's we'll good. get that. A, well, that's a pass. Yes, yes. Uh, what's your dad's favourite colour? Even I know I, this. I think everyone knows Everyone this. shout out. What's the man's favourite colour? Yes, orange. Right, orange. <laughs> Very bright. And what's your fa dad's favourite pastime, hobby? She wasn't very sure about this, but she reckons if, she, if Dad has a pastime, it would be making furniture things out of wood. Yeah, that's mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's running. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and the last one, what's Dad's favourite board game? He said he doesn't play board games. He hates board games, but he likes to play 13. Okay, Five. Connect Four. He never plays Connect Four. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot. Okay. And... Uh, I did have a uh, final one. I'll just ask uh, Izzy to come quickly. Do you trust your father and why? This is an important one. Yes. <laughs> Do you trust your father and why? I think for me the biggest thing is looking back on my life and, yeah, just all the different times. Uh, all the different times of my life and having him there so consistent, so selfless, sacrificing things for our family. Um, yeah, being so faithful. Knowing that, I can always trust him with yeah. the future. Being there at key times and stages in your life and being faithful there. Amen. Thank you, ladies. Put your hands together for them. <clears throat> you see, how do they know them? It's, it's quite simple. It's a very simple illustration, but it's true. They spend time with him. They've got to know him as... A dad, they've seen him operate as a husband with mum and the way he respects her and treats her. They see dad as an employee at his workplace. They hear how he talks about his workplace when he comes home, how he plays sports and interacts with others. He's added towards injustice. His attitude with generosity towards others. Our kids see this. Our kids see this. And this, this starts to build and shape a framework which is very important can I trust my father? Because there's no good having a Bible full of promises if you don't trust your father. It's no good having a dad in real world who said, I'll be there for that, I'll be there for that, I'll give you that, if he's broken every promise in the past. You see, the first doorway we must enter is this is the word of God, but can I trust my father? If I can't trust him, I won't go to his Bible, I won't open his word, I won't look at his promises. But if I can trust him because he's been there, I want to get to know him more. His role as an encourager. All of these things, do I feel safe with him? Yes, I do. Can I trust him and respect him? And these are the things that we ask about our father. Our father plays such an important role in our lives, and I'm speaking to dads here today. As our children grow up, as they grow into adulthood, fathers have a significant role. Mums do too, but the father's voice, so significant. And I know there's people here today that didn't have a pleasant experience growing up with a dad and 
We're going to get to that later, and I'll give you some hope for that. Why is it so important for us to study the Word and read the Word and live in the Word and honor the Word? It has everything to do with discovering the identity of my new father, God. And the moment we make a decision to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we become his children. And as such, it's critical that we get to know him as our father. I remember doing my father's funeral and I had to write some words down for my father and hop up and speak. So I took, took the, you know, the way I do it, I always do the little acronym, I put the F-A-T-H-E-R, but they were real and they relate to today. I said, my father, I love him because half he's faithful. He's a friend. He's always been there. My dad was uh, not just a strict person, but my dad was a friend. He would sit down and laugh and we were chatting about dad just recently when Travis was in the little bouncy thing in the doorway where you put them up in the doorway and they bounce and we used to hold Travis down and let him go. He was like a little scholar, go way up and come down. Dad sat there and laughed and laughed and laughed and said, do it again. So we pulled him down again, let him go. We had some friend times. A, he was always available to me. T, he taught me. H, his hands were ready to help. E, he was an encourager. R, I could rely upon him. Our father. Quick quiz. How well do you know your heavenly father? Quick quiz. What grieves the heart of God? Just right now, have a chat to the person beside you. What grieves the heart of God? What do you feel? For the sake of the message, we'll keep moving now. Number one, rebellion. <clears throat> Psalm 78, 10 says, 40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. To rebel means to openly refuse, resist any authority or control that he speaks and wants to speak into our life. We become defiant when God speaks to us in his word and says, I want you to forgive that person. And you say, no, I want you to forgive them. No, that was what grieves his heart. What grieves his heart is the brokenhearted. It says in Psalm 34, 18, if your heart is broken, you'll find God right there grieving with you. I love that. If you're kicked in the, excuse me, it's in the message. If you're kicked in the guts, he'll help you catch your breath. I see the picture of whack. I'm bad over. I can't get my breath. And my father God is there and he's going, I got you, I got you, I got you. Just take, just take some quick breaths. I got you. It's a picture of dad. And I love these pictures. What grieves him? The brokenhearted. I remember when Chloe had to go in for operation. You see, what God hurts when we hurt. God hurts when we hurt. When you're hurting, God is hurting. Isn't that so much like a parent? I tell you what, we can go through some painful things ourselves. We'll put up with stuff in our life. But if one of our kids gets hit and kicked in the gut and is hurt, it affects us as a parent. We hurt with them. We grieve with them. And Chloe went into the hospital and the, she had to go in and get a jaw broken. And how many places was it? Two or four. Broken, broken, reconstructed. They said it's major surgery. And I said, yeah, that's okay. The specialist said, when you come in next day, she won't look like you thought she'd look. She's going to be like that. I said, no, it's okay. Saturday morning, we go down, walk into the little private hospital. And they said, she's in there. I went in and I, the picture was my last picture is Chloe being wheeled out on a trolley in the hospital. She's giving a thumbs up and, the, and, the, and she says, bring it on. And the nursing sister said, I don't think she knows what she's going in for. When I walked in the room, her head was like this, swollen, where they'd cut and broken her jaws and put her. And we got up beside her and Michelle's and I just left the room and I'm outside bawling my eyes as a father. I didn't want to see her and, I, and Michelle came out. She said, you okay? I said, that's not my girl. And we went back in and sat beside the bed and I held her hand and, and just while she was just under the medication. You see, what hurts you hurts your dad. You're not alone. I love that about him. I love this in uh, Psalm 41 to 2. I read this in the voice. 
I waited for my father. He finally knelt down to hear me. He listened to my weak and whispered cry. Have you ever found yourself so weak in prayer? You just, God, God, you've got to help me. He reached down and drew me from the deep, dark hole where I felt stranded. And with a gentle hand, he pulled me out and he set me down safely on a warm rock. And he, I love this, I love this. He held me until I was steady enough to continue my journey again. <laughs> Why do I read his word? Because it just describes my father. It's my loving father. And when I'm going through stuff, why do I run there? Because I know what his character is like. I know about my dad. That's what he rejoices over. Who else does he rejoice over? He rejoices over you. Tell the person beside you, he rejoices over you. For the Lord, Zephaniah 3.17, for the Lord your God has arrived to live among you. He is a mighty saviour. He will give you victory. He will rejoice, shout praises, boast over you with gladness. He will love you, not accuse you. Is that a choir I hear? No, it's the Lord himself singing a song over me. I used to sit in Chloe's room and, sorry, Trav, it's Chloe's day today. And, uh, and uh, I'd sit in her room and as a little baby and I'd get the guitar and I'd sing songs over her. I don't know why, but it was our first child and I'm in there and she's got a little dummy dumb thing going. I said I'd never do a dummy, but I did in the end. And so I'm sitting there and I'm all oh, thinking, oh, there was a little girl called Chloe who walked outside and saw the birds in the skies. And, she, and I'd sing these songs and over and she had a little teddy bear, a little white one, and she'd tighten up the ear of the little teddy bear so there's a point. And, excuse me, and she'd get it and put it up her nose. And she'd itch you, put the little teddy bear down. And uh, when I finished, she'd be done like that. And I'd just hop up to walk out. And, daddy, daddy, sing, sing again, sing again. There was a little girl called Chloe. Was it a pain for me? No, it was a joy. I wanted to sing over her. These are things that the Lord rejoices over. People of integrity. Proverbs 11.1. 1. God hates cheating in the marketplace, but he loves it, rejoices over it when business is above board, open and honest. He loves, rejoices. People who speak the truth. Proverbs 12.22. God cannot stomach liars. He loves, rejoices over the company of those who keep his word. People who show kindness that you understand, Jeremiah 9, 24, <clears throat> that you understand and know me, that you understand and know me, get to know me as your father. I'm God, I act in loyal love. I do what's right and set things right and fair and delight in those who do the same. They are my trademarks. This is my heart. We're discovering about God. Finally, what does he get excited about and rejoice over? <clears throat> His son, Jesus. The moment Jesus came up out of the baptismal waters, the skies opened up and he saw God's spirit. It looked like a dove descending and landing on him. And along with the spirit, a voice said, this is my son, chosen, marked by my love, the delight of my life. Quick thing, what does God hate? I'm just going to stop on Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. Take note, there are six things God hates. No, make it seven, he says. Eyes that look down on others, pride. A tongue that cannot be trusted, a liar. Hands that shed innocent blood. That's gossip, New Testament, through murder. Heart that conceives evil plans. Feet that run towards evil. They love to hang around stuff that's not good. A false witness who lies. And anyone who stirs up trouble, especially amongst the body, that do the anything. Why? Because it all has to do with community. All of those issues there are things between people. And God is such a big one on building community and unity. And he says, anything that breaks fellowship, I don't like. So honor one another. We're looking at why I love the Bible. It's to discover my father's 
identity. I'm going to land on something now which every one of us will relate to. I've been around ministry now for 40 years. This affects pastors, it affects you, it affects your children. Your life will be a journey and a discovery of finding out who you are, your identity. We get by and act with what we feel we are. During life's journey, we put up barriers, we put up safety walls to protect us from painful moments. Counselors and psychologists will tell you the, the intricate part of that, that you build rooms to go in and you never go back there. But all through life, every one of us are trying to walk out and work out this thing called a healthy identity. Why is it important? Because the next stage is your authority. Your authority flows from your identity. If you don't have a strong, healthy identity, you have a weak, established authority or an unhealthy authority. You move more to abuse and things like that. And this is why the Word of God is so important. What does the word identity mean? <clears throat> It's the distinguishing character or personality of an individual. Our identity is the way that we define ourselves. This includes our values, our beliefs, and our personality. Why is identity important? The, our ident a healthy identity is important. It says here, a positive, healthy sense of identity is crucial to your development of self-esteem and confidence. Hebrews 10.35 says, don't throw away your confidence for great is its reward. All of the promises of God are linked to how you are confident to step out. Children who feel worthy and capable are more likely to be optimistic and do well in school and society. You cannot exercise a healthy authority with a broken, unhealthy identity. That's why this book here has been so important to me all my life. It was written by my father, my creator, who knows me better than anyone else, who lovingly designed me, shaped me, created me, gave me uniqueness, my gifts, my personality, everything. Now, when it comes to your identity and my identity, we discover that our past has shaped us our past relationships, our past painful encounters, our past momentous occasions, winning at sports, winning at academics. All of these either put confidence in or take confidence out. When we grew up in school, won't you be glad, when the classroom was set up, oh, Bailey, this was, this was real good. When you've done very well in your class, the top academics go right to the back. There was a seat allocated for the number one student, right down the back in the corner. The remainder of us, way up the front. And the, 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 this was the thinking. If you done very well, Lynn, you were passing with AAA, you don't need, go down the back. You, you, but all you other lower plebs, you come and sit up the front. You really need to listen in here. I would, my goal, my goal, Bailey, was not to get to the second row. It was to get to the end of the first row. That was my goal. And I was telling Michelle about this one day, and she said, guess where I was? I said, yeah, you're up the back, yeah. But that played a part in my identity. Just that little way we sat. You're not as good as others. Our history has a part to play in shaping. What's a couple of signs of, do I have a healthy or unhealthy image? Number one, you tend to change with your environment. If you work at one job and everyone is studious and quiet, you will be studious and quiet. If your next job requires you to be chatty, upbeat, up the front doing sales, you will seem as if you were always the social type. You were bored for this baby. It's as if you are more formed by your environment than your own choices and personality. The second one is relationships seem to mold you. 
You're likely the sort who feels bereft without a relationship when you actually do get into one. You tend to change your hobbies and appearance to match your partner. It would be like if I love being dressed in country and western clothes and doing line dancing, and then I linked up with uh, Matt, and Matt starts to say, well, I'm, 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 and next week you see Matt, he's got a, got a country gospel shirt on and a hat. And you say, Matt, how you doing? He goes, not bad, partner. How you doing? He's chewing a bit of grass. Who are you hanging around? I've been hanging around part the mark, man. Yeah, what, Matt, can you come over for dinner Thursday? No, mate, I'm doing line dancing. And say, mate, there's something wrong with Matt. <laughs> uh, maybe he's healthy self-image. You will convince yourself that what they like is what you really like, <laughs> but you just didn't know it. Number three, you often have radical shifts in your opinion. This can include big things like political and religious beliefs or just your opinion on popular culture and things like food and fashion. You might even find you change your mind from day to day and never know what you'll agree with next. Maybe you don't have a healthy self-image. Number four, you don't like being asked about yourself. It makes you uncomfortable when people ask too many questions about you. Perhaps you've developed good tactics for avoiding this, like changing the subject, turning questions around onto the other person, then just agreeing with them. Number five, your identity crisis means you get bored very easily. <clears throat> At the heart of not having an identity is often a restlessness as if you are afraid to settle down in case you commit to the wrong thing that makes your life worse instead of better. The truth is that as much as you want to know who you are, there is a little fear of knowing too. Maybe my identity needs to get some health injected into it. Number six, your relationships don't run deep. If you aren't sure who you are, you can have a fear that others will find out that you are actually nothing much and they're not like you. They're not. So there can be a lot of self-protection going on that prevents real connection with others, even if you tend to attract a lot of friends and are often in a relationship. You will likely suffer a fear of intimacy. You might also have trouble holding on to a relationship or social circle for too long or find you hang around with people who control you and tell you what to do. Number seven, deep down, you just don't trust yourself. If you don't know who you are and you have surprised yourself in the past with your own quick decisions and sudden changes of opinion, you can feel that you can't even trust yourself. Which leads to the question, <clears throat> how do I get my identity taken through a health check? And why is my identity so important to exercising God's authority in my life? There was a psychologist by the name of Eric Erickson who in the late 40s. Development psychologist Eric Erickson coined the term identity crisis. He theorized the environment of a child growing up was crucial to forming their sense of self-awareness and self. He identified eight stages to psychosocial growth that all build on each other and each offers us a positive outcome if, say if, if we experience it properly. Now that's the challenge right there. If each of us go through these eight stages and we experience it properly in a healthy environment. Who here today grew up in a positive, healthy, wholesome environment? It's a good thing. But as I look back over life and as I look back over my life as a pastor and get to talk with people, most of the challenges and issues that we go through stem from something that happened in the past that is showing up in my current future and today. A lot of people in prison today, especially the men, stems back to their issues with their father. We're talking about why do I value the word and why do I honor the word? We're going to discover 
It has the power to go through every one of my eight stages and bring me health, wholeness, and healing back to the way he sees me. Amen? So what do we do with our collective past? Now that we're brought to the altar, we become a Christian. That's the easy part. Come out the front, we get saved, our sins are forgiven, we go and sit down and we say, praise the Lord, I feel so free. Not realizing I'm still carrying 20 years, 30 years, 40 years of history still in my soul, still where I've been hurt, still where I've had issues. That's why 75% of the New Testament was written, not just to fill the Bible, it was written to churches dealing with issues of their collective past and history. Thessalonica, Galatians church dealing with issues. Every letter that Paul wrote in here was to address issues, to bring healing, to bring pain, uh, to, to take away pain, to bring relationships back together, to teach them how to live. That's why it was written. And so that's why I honor the word and God can come in and deal with stuff and in my life through his word. My new car is a Toyota Kluger hybrid. Now, when I have an issue with it, and I hope I don't, Lord, I'm not going to take it around to Bill because Bill's a painter. I'm going to take it to the owner, the one who designed it, Toyota. They know exactly what it is. And same here. When we have stuff in our life, we go to the Word of God. He's my creator. He's the one who made me. He shaped me, knows the real me inside and out. How do I do that? John 8, 31 to 32 says, If you hear my voice and it abides in you, my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth. You will discover the truth. And that truth will give you freedom. That's why we read his word. Not out of some religious duty, but out of a relationship to know his identity as my father. And he will help me establish my identity as his child. Let's quickly look for the remainder of this message. These eight stages, we're going to move through them. Number one, the early stage is birth to two years old. We've got families here now that this relates to. This is the stage where trust and mistrust is established. The virtue or strength is it gives the child hope right in these early stages. Question, can I trust this world I find myself in? The needs are that your parents meet your basic needs and that your main caregiver, such as your mother, models trustfulness of others and trustworthiness as a person. So you need warmth, affection, and consistency. And if you don't get that, then you will end up with a sense of mistrust, lack of confidence, and suspicion of others. A negative belief will go into you at that age. The world is a dangerous place. I can't depend on anyone or anything. And the question can be posed in a seed form can I trust this world I find myself in? And the lie comes with the seed, I can't depend on anyone or anything. But God's word says to that, Lamentations 3, 23, his compassion never ends. It is only the Lord's mercies that have kept us from complete destruction. Great is his faithfulness. Say his. His faithfulness. His loving kindness it starts fresh every day. My early days of growing up, my mum mightn't have been there. Lynnie shared her testimony when Lynn was only two or three, that her mum walked out and went to Dubai and she was over there and she lived with the grandmother. There were seeds placed in Lynn's life that I've had to walk with and work with as mum and dad over those years with Lynnie, even in her 30s and her 40s, going back then. And that stemmed from her seed going back why was I abandoned? Why wasn't I loved? Why wasn't I accepted? Why wasn't I valued? These were all seeds that Lynn has shared publicly and in testimony. These are seeds that can go in. Now I can come along and tell Lenny, you are worthy. You are of value. You are an incredible young woman. You can do amazing things. That will take her so far. But complete healing is when you open up his word and his word touches you in one moment, touches that lie and tells you who you are from a father and heals you. Wow, a shout comes out in your spirit. You say, I'm free. I'm free. 
The second stage. Autonomy versus shame and doubt, age two to four years. The strength there is to establish a will. The question that child asked between the age of two and four, what they're asking is, is it okay to be me? The child needs at that age patience and encouragement from the adults around you to allow you to explore and learn about your environment. To be allowed to try things for yourself like washing yourself and dressing yourself as a little two to four year old while still having support, not being left to do things you aren't capable of. And if you don't get that, you can end up feeling unable to do things, ashamed of who you are, lesser than or too dependent on others. And a negative belief can come in, I am hopeless. I'll never be good at anything. I can't take care of myself. And the question raised is a lie. Is it okay to be me? Philippians 4 says, I can do what? All things through Christ Jesus. I can do all things. Number three, the third stage is age five to eight. Initiative versus guilt. Early childhood. Sense of purpose. Is it okay to do things? To be encouraged to think for yourself, to try to do things even though you feel confused and guilty. Developing a sense of judgment and an ability to plan. Taking small risks such as riding a bike for the first time and without training wheels or crossing the street alone and looking back. To not be made to feel silly or annoying for things you want to try. And if you don't get that, you can sometimes feel guilty about getting your needs and desires met. A negative belief is, I don't deserve good things. Nobody really likes me. James 1.17 says, Every good action and every perfect gift is from God. These good gifts come down from the creator of the sun, moon and stars who does not change like their shifting shadows. It's okay for you to experience new and good things. Number four. Industry versus inferiority, 9 to 12. Competency, this is trying to build into your life in a healthy way. The question raises, can I really handle this world of other people and things? The needs are to move out of just playing into actually being able to do projects and use your skills to take things to completion. You learn at this stage to have confidence in your skills and to work alone as well as cooperate with others. You also develop a stronger sense of right and wrong and learn to respect differences in others. It's really the era of you starting your independence, according to Erickson's theory. You need to be allowed to explore your talents and your potential. And if you don't get that, you can end up with a low self-esteem and lack of interest or motivation in doing things and engaging with the world. A negative belief can come in and say, everything is pointless, I'll never be good enough. I'll never be good at sports. I'll never be good at basketball. I'll never be good at academics. I'll never be good with mixing with people. And the question raised at that time is, can I really handle this world of other people and things? God's word says, my grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your areas of weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take my limitations in stride and with good cheer. These limitations that cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, opposition, bread breaks, I just let Jesus take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. I let his word minister to me. Number five is identity versus role confusion, ages 12 to 19. These are the teenage years. Look at the person on your left and say, help me, Jesus. <laughs> the question they raise is, who am I, really? And what might I become? They need to make decisions on who you are going to be in the world. Now you are moving away from depending on your parents and you realize your life is going to be up to you. You decide on all parts of your identity, your values, your occupation. How can you combine the person you are becoming 
with the expectations of society. How are you going? Start playing. You need to be able to experiment and explore your identities and to make your own choices. And if you don't get that, you can end up with an ongoing identity crisis. You never know what to commit to or be loyal to. The negative belief that can come in at this age is, I am unacceptable as I am. The question they raise over and over is, who am I really? What have I become? God's Word said, here's a word you can take to heart and depend on. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm proof. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. Of someone who could never have made it apart from sheer mercy. Read this. And now... He shows me off evidence of His endless patience to those who are right on the edge of trusting Him forever. That lie that wants to be planted, who am I? Am I unacceptable? No, you are acceptable. You are loved. And God likes to show you off. The second last stage is intimacy versus isolation, adulthood, 20 to 39 years. The question you ask is, can I love others? Erickson's theory suggests we need to fit in, but we also need to be brave enough to overcome rejection and be ourselves regardless. We need to make commitments to others to have healthy relationships where we give and receive with friends and partners. And if you don't get that, you can deal with a constant sense of loneliness and feel like an outsider. This at times can mean going to ongoing depression and dark thoughts. Once again, the negative belief can come in, I am unlovable, there is something wrong with me, I'm not like the others. The lie, I am, I am unlovable, there is something wrong. God's Word says this, and I love this. Ephesians 1.5, the message. How blessed is God and what a blessing He is. He's the Father of our Master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in Him. Long before He laid down earth's foundations, He had us in mind. Tell the person on your right or behind you, He had you in mind before He even created everything. And He had settled on us as the focus of His love to be made whole and holy by His love. I want you to tell the person, this is so important, tell the person on the other side, you are loved just the way you are. You are loved, seriously, seriously. This is a big one with people. Let me read this, let, let me read this, this. Long, like Star Wars, long, long ago, God decided, now of all the words to put in here, He could have put anywhere, but He put this. Long ago, He decided to what? Adopt us. I don't know about you, but sometimes we have children, mistakenly. But adoption is not a mistake. And adoption is a thought out process. You research, you look at the child, you discover things about them. You make the decision. You, you work through the process where we're, we're committed for the journey. We're committed in the, the finances. We're committed with the resources. We're committed with the energy. We're going to adopt this child. We're going to give them our name and they're going to sit under our roof. We're going to give them the authority and the covering. We're going to adopt them. Am I unlovable? No, you better not believe it. Long ago, He decided to adopt us into His family through Jesus. Lord, look at it, it says here, what pleasure He took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of His lavish gift giving by the beloved hand of His Son. I wrote down here, you can have a child by accident, but you cannot adopt a child by accident. 
When you adopt a child, you choose to love, to cherish and care for that child for life. And when God adopts you, it's not an accident. He chooses to love you, cherish you and care for you wherever. He does it because He loves you and He wants an eternal relationship with you. God loves His children as a proud father. If you've begun a relationship with Him, you are His child, you are adopted. Put your hand on your heart and say, I'm adopted. I'm adopted. God, God adopted me. This week when come, someone comes up to you, just go, oh, by the way, can I tell you, I've just been adopted. What? It's a good conversation starter. Yeah, I'm adopted. I've been adopted by my father. I've got his name. I've got his blessing. I've got his authority. I've got his cover. I'm adopted. The last one is this. I like this one. Oh, no, it is. Oh, good one. Age 40 to 59, 60. That's where we are, Peter. Can I make my life count? This is the years that sometimes we fall into what they call a midlife crisis. I went through one of them. To contribute to society, to society, to feel that your life is meaning to feel productive. It's between the age of 40 and 60, you go, what in the earth have I done with my life? Has it not been of any value? This doesn't mean you have to do something huge. It can mean things like taking good care of your family, participating in your community, or being a good citizen. You need to feel, you need to feel that what you do has value. And if you don't get that, you can feel constantly dissatisfied and feel like you're wasting your life. The negative belief that can enter in is life is pointless. Nothing I do matters. The question I ask is, can I make my life count? Does my life still have meaning? Ephesians 2.10 says, He has created each and every one of us to join Him in the work He does, the good work He has gotten ready for you to do. There's a little video clip. I just want to show you this right now. It only goes for one minute and 30 seconds. Let's put this video up. In the spring of 1988, my sophomore year of college, I hit an all-time low. That year I was caught shoplifting and was in danger of losing my scholarship. I was caught cheating on my girlfriend with one of my close friends' girlfriend, which was completely humiliating. I was battling a uh, very real addiction to alcohol and I felt indescribably hopeless and depressed. Well, one day walking out of a business class, I met an older gentleman who was wearing a suit and tie who offered me a free Bible. And years later, I discovered that this gentleman from the Gideon organization was most likely this man whose name was Mike. If you can imagine, one day, one man and one gift Just remember completely that. changed my life. It just takes one. Now, here I am three decades later, and I have the honor of leading the church that's given away the YouVersion Bible app to over 450 million people. Today, in this message, what I wanna do is plant one big idea in your mind and pray that it lands in your spirit and overtakes your soul. The thought is this. You have no idea how God might use you. Come on. One word of encouragement. Come on. One act of service. Come on. One gift of generosity to change someone's life. Come you have on. no idea how God might use you. Does my life really matter? Between 40 to 60. You don't have to start it straight away and plan a crusade in Africa with 50,000 people to feel of value. One day, one man, one small act changed 450 million downloads. Was that it? Was that the amount? By one small act. I want to encourage you this week, if you're feeling that way, I tell Michelle and Mouet, text one person today just to say one good thing. Share one good thing one small act 
and your life will really change for the better. Finally, this is our stage, Peter. Ego integrity versus despair. I thought that would be a nice one for us. The strength is called wisdom, that we have wisdom. And we ask this question, was who I have been okay? I catch up with Peter probably twice a week. We have a meal. And one of Peter's common statements lately has been this. Wow. Mark, life goes so quick. Life goes so quick. Where's it gone? Where's it gone? And we sit there and have noodle soup, building us up each up with this healthy self-confidence. Yeah. But he says, he says, life is so quick. Approaching 70. And we ask ourselves, and we can ask ourselves, looking back, was who I have been, is that okay? And our need is this, to be able to look at who I am and what I did and feel okay with it. To have the inner strength to contemplate what I learned and attempted and achieved and be at peace with that. And if I don't get that, if I don't get that in my spirit, I can end up becoming bitter and feeling disappointed as I look back over my life. And I can start to say and believe the negative lie, everything was pointless. But Philippians 4 says this, I'm not saying this because I am in need. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. In fact, I've learned to face every circumstance. I can be content in any and every situation through the anointed one who is my power and my strength. There are times Michelle and I, over the years, have looked back over our life and decisions I've made and decisions we've made. And you know, we, we look and we go, oh boy, we, we, we could have done that better. But, but God, we could have done that better. But God, we don't want to park at that place where we could have and start to go up a little sidetrack where it takes us to disappointment, regret. We just say, no, 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 but God. But God has been faithful and we've learned to be content. So every one of those stages is a lie and the potential for a lie to come in and touch your identity with where you are today. How does transformation take place through the Word? Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, dedicating all of yourselves set apart as a living sacrifice, holy and well-pleasing as the band comes, to God, which is your rational, logical, intelligent act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world any longer with its superficial values and customs, but say transformed, but be transformed and progressively changed progressively changed as you mature spiritually. How? By the renewing of your mind, focusing on God's Word, His values, His ethical attitudes, by soaking in His Word so that you may prove for yourself what is the will of God, which is good, which is acceptable in my life. I close with the story I was seated over here. The year was 1998. I'd just arrived. Associate pastor in ministry, Dunn Bible College. And uh, Pastor Chris Peterson was preaching. That morning he preached from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 5. And he just read these words. You have been going around this mountain long enough. And when I sat there and he said these words, bang, it exploded in me. I can't remember much of the message, but I sat there sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And I knew God was dealing with me. We left there 
that day and I said to Michelle, I said, uh, sweetheart, I've got to go and do business with God. And that meant get away from the house, get a hotel. I could be gone for a couple of days. But that day we were invited out for lunch. And our lunch that day was with Wayne and Karen. And I can still remember they had hot chicken. I still remember the food. And, and uh, she said, but we're going out to, for lunch. And I said, I know, I know. Uh, all right. So we went there and I was not good company. And I went over and I said to Wayne, I said, I'm so sorry. I said, but uh, God's just messing me up. He, and, I, and I've got to honor what he's doing. And he's stirring. And I, I know there's going to do some work in my heart. And so uh, he said, not a problem, Pastor Mark. And so I left and they dropped Michelle home. And I went home and got my Bible and got my guitar and headed down south to Norlunga. Booked into a hotel and I was bawling. and Sat there that night. I said, God, what are you doing? What do you mean you've been going around that mountain long enough? He said, son, open up your word. And I began to open up. And he took me to the story of David developing as a child. And I began to read his story. And in that moment, I went in. I've, I've very rarely it's happened to me. I've had two, two occasions where I went into like a trance or a vision. And I was taken from my current place at Norlunga and portaled back in time to the Shire Council Hall in my country town of Emerald. And there was a big play on. It was the school play. And at the school play, I was in a little school play for a song called Once a Jolly Swagman, Camp by the Billabong. And I was one of the little troopers. Isn't that funny? I was a little trooper then and became a policeman later. I only saw that. <laughs> and I was one of the troopers. In the song, it says, up come the troopers, one, two, three. And while I'm at the back, I've got my little little, little pistol on. and I'm going around the back, typical as I was. A bit like Travi. Travi does these things. <laughs> and uh, every one of Travi's reports is, could do better with academically, but everyone loves him. He's the real, he's the clown. Everyone in the clown, not the clown, but he gets the class laughing and every, he's, the, he's the social activist. He loves it. And I recently had a pastor tell me, so I just bumped into your son. He is so funny. I just laughed. He is, he, he just, I just love being with him. Well, that was from dad too. So I'm running around the back and this thing's just being played to me. And I go, ba-doo, ba-doo. Everyone's out on the stage there, and I'm behind the curtains. And the other people are sitting there practicing the lines. And I'm coming up going, hee hee, pew, 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 pew. <laughs> well, the school teacher came up, Mrs. Launder, Betty Launder. She was built like a Polish wrestler. She was a big lady. And uh, she came up and she just grabbed me and she says, give me that gun. And she took it off me. And she went, she put it up on top of something like the fire hydrant. It was up high. I, I couldn't get to it. And uh, so she said, now stay here. All right. So uh, we got, and she said, the, the, the play's happening, the song's stump, and we're coming up to the troopers. She goes, troopers ready, troopers ready. So they all go, do, do, do. And I went, oh, my pistol, my pistol, where's my pistol, where's my pistol? And I'm out wondering, where's my pistol? Look it. Uh, and then I heard the song. Up come the troopers, one, two, 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 three. Well, two went out, and I'm stuck out. Missed my moment. Missed it by that much. So I snuck up to the curtains. The curtains were in layers. And I looked out, and I'm scanning over the whole people. And I saw where Kathy was. This figure start to rise. And it was my mother. And she's looking. The one who made my uniform, the one who designed it, the one who lovingly knitted it while she was so proud that her boy was in a play. She was so proud. And she's looking, where is my boy? And in that moment, in that moment, the lie came in. You always bring pain. 
those closest to you. You've let your mother down again. And I grieved and I felt I'm seven years old and I huddled. We got home and I can still see I walked in with my head down and the seed went in and the pain and let my mum down. Her moment, and it doesn't matter how many times she said, don't worry about it. But it grew. And I said, God, why are you showing me this? He said, son, you've carried it all through your life. Every time you get into this and relationships, that seed is there. You'll disappoint them too. And so I became angry, started to fight. And I took my anger, even when I was a Christian, I took my anger into my marriage with my children. And I, I, I became abusive with my voice and I would speak harshly over them. And sitting here one day, one moment, one message. Son, you've been going around this mountain long enough. And I sat down and he began to minister to me through his words. Scripture after scripture, I've forgiven you. I've forgiven you. And then he got me to write letters. And I've told you before, I wrote a letter to Michelle. I'm sorry. I wrote a letter to Chloe. I'm so sorry as your dad. I wrote a letter to Travis. I'm so sorry as your father. It's about four or five o'clock in the morning now. And I felt I was getting healed. And then he said, there's one more letter. I said, who, Lord? I want you to write one to yourself. And I wrote the letter to myself. Mark, I forgive you. Stop beating yourself up. But all of that, that moment, that one night, came through hearing his word, the word that brings life, brings healing, and then going sitting in his word and soaking and it brought healing to me. Why do I love the Word? Because it's my Father writing to me. Can we bow our heads in prayer this morning? Lord, we want to honour your Word today. And we come right now. And Lord, we say we're sorry. We, we, we repent. We say, Lord, I repent from not going to your word, picking up your word, reading your word. I'm so sorry, Lord Jesus. Would you, would you help us? Would you help us re-engage with your word, Holy Spirit? Would you help us re-engage with your love letter to us? And while every head is bowed and every eye closed here this morning, I believe the Holy Spirit has been talking to many here this morning about little things I've touched on as I've been preaching can I encourage you when you go home, don't lose that moment. Go home and get your devotional out. Begin to write in it. Begin to open your word and say, Holy Spirit, would you take me to your scripture right now? I want to be healed of this. I want to be set free from this. And he will do that. Amen. Amen. Can we put our hands together and honor the Lord this morning? Thank you for your word. Let's stand this morning. Let's stand. We'll close in worship. Thank you, worship team.
make room. I want to make room for you. As we open up and honor your word, we're going to make room, Holy Spirit. To do whatever you want. To. You do whatever you want to speak to, to me. Whatever you want speak to, to me. And I will make room for you. To do whatever you want to. To do whatever you want to. And I will make room. And I will make room for you. Yes, yes, God's to doing the work right now. You want to. Yes. Shake up the ground of all my tradition. Break down the walls of all my religion. Your way is better. Your way is better. Shake up the ground of all my tradition. Break down the walls of all my religion. Posture of our heart as we leave. Holy Spirit, come, draw us back to your word. Draw us back to your loving word and honor it. If it's been a while since you've opened the word, can I encourage you just to go to Psalms? begin to read Psalms. Way, 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 way back in the third and fourth century, the early church fathers, the moment you became a Christian, they started you in Psalms. And they used to do this. They did the 150 Psalms divided into five lots of 30. You will see that five lots of 30 gave the five stages of development in someone's growth. The first Psalm speaks about the breaking forth and the born of the new babe. The second stage is the early childhood development. Third is the teens and adolescents coming through. And what happens is when you begin to read the Psalms and read them aloud, you're communicating His Word as a child back to Him. And so I'd encourage you, if it's been quite a while since you've opened the Word, start reading the Psalms. If you want to discover Jesus, read the Gospels. Go in there and ask yourself, why did He do that? Why did he say that? Why did he change from that? Ask questions and he will speak to you in a fresh way. Father, we honor your words. Could I invite you to say that with me? Father, I honor your word. I honor your word. Turn around someone and say, now that wasn't bad, was it? God bless you. God bless your life, family.